Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Y'all didn't know you were getting church this morning. You got a double testimony, a double pastoral prayer from Jeff the Baptist, a little wrap-up from Pastor Ben. I, I told Cooper, I said, dude, I need you to stay up here, hit those, that gospel, the organ, the gospel organ. I like, we'll start, I need someone cartwheeling up here. Like, we'll, if we're going to do church, we're going to do church this morning. Um, but my name's Dylan. I get to serve here as the Young Adults Director. I am not the normal preacher around here. That is Ben, who gave the announcements a moment ago. But I am grateful to get to be here with you guys to take a break from the sermon series that we've been doing. We're going to finish it up in the coming weeks. Um, but we say, hey, let's take some time to nail this down. This is um, uh, to categorize this. Uh, my good, dear friend Adam Varan, he spoke here four sermons ago. So last month, um, him and his family just picked up. Um, moved to Tampa yesterday, but they have been a faithful, integral part of this church for the last five years or so. Um, and their main work here was in discipleship. And so um, we're talking about the cost of discipleship this morning. If you need a good, strong um, definition of discipleship, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You can go back in our podcast or on YouTube, and he just put in an hour, just a wealth of years of study and experience. Here's what discipleship is. And so Adam went back and uh, he defined discipleship. This morning, we're going to kind of go to the beginning. What is our starting place? What is the cost of discipleship? And the reason we're doing this, um, to use like an aviation analogy, I've got, um, I've got a buddy who's 19, and he's about to get his aviation coaching license. So not only is he 19 and flying around, he's teaching others. I'm like, dude, I think you should have a fully formed prefrontal cortex before you go teaching other people how to fly. Um, but um, navigation is so important to aviation um, because especially if you're going on long flights, if you get just one degree off, if you get just one degree off, you're in a different country. You're heading the completely different place, right? And so when it comes to the starting point, to the cost of discipleship, it is integral to say, what is this we're getting into? You know, if I'm saying, if I'm claiming to be a Jesus follower, and I'm saying, I need to know what I'm getting into because I claim to be a Jesus follower and I miss it at the beginning, getting this part wrong will take your life in a completely different direction than discipleship to Jesus ought to. So this morning we're going to nail down what is our starting place, what does it cost, and why does it matter? We're going to be coming from Luke 9 this morning. And what's been happening, um, Luke 9 indicates a shift in the gospel narrative. Luke 8, um, the big question is, who is this? The Pharisees say, who is this man who says he has the authority to forgive sins? The disciples say, who is this man who even the wind and the waves obey him? The first eight chapters were figuring out who is, who is this guy. Um, and right here at the beginning of chapter 9, um, Jesus says, hey, disciples, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. So, okay, we got it. We figured out who he is now. The narrative changes. What does it mean to follow him? If we know who he is, what does it mean to follow him? We're going to be starting in verse 23, and it's, it's relevant that right before we pick up, Jesus foretells his death, um, which is interesting because if they just claimed he is the Messiah, they believe the Messiah is going to come as a warlord um, and take over Israel, be the king, and save them from all their oppressors. Um, and then he says, hey, I'm actually going to die. I'm going to suffer, be rejected by the priests, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. Just need you all to know that. And then he comes to this. He says, I'm going to die, and we'll pick up in Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I put the emphasis on, on daily. Let him deny himself. If you're going to follow me, <clears throat> this is what it means. You deny yourself, you take up your cross daily, and you follow me. Um, John Calvin, the great theologian, um, especially the Reformed faith, but, but reform, Reformed faith, but has done a lot to, to build the church as we know it today um, during the Reformation period. And he said if he was to sum up the Christian life just in two words, be self-denial. Is this right here. Deny yourself. This is self-denial. This is what it means to be a Christian. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great pastor theologian who stood against the Third Reich in Nazi Germany and was um, persecuted for it. Um, so he understands what this verse means um, in a very personal way. Um, when he wrote his book, The Cost of Discipleship, um, his famous work, he said, when Jesus calls someone to follow him, he bids them come and die. And so this is the claim. And I'm just going to try to spin this sermon not weakening that claim for you. Honestly, just letting that rest firmly on us. That the call of Jesus is come and die. And this, if we... If understood properly, just flies in the face of what we think Christianity is. We've made ourselves so comfortable with our ideals um, that Christianity has become anything but this. But when you see this image, I mean, we, you know, when we as, as Christians or people familiar with Jesus at all, we see, we see the cross, we know where the imagery is going. Um, we're like, okay, yeah, this, this is to say be like Jesus. But this is the first mention of the cross in Luke. So this is kind of... Out of left field, Jesus just brings up a cross. They don't know. They know he's going to die. He just told them he's going to die. They don't know he's going to die on a Roman cross. And so the, you know, the contextualization that I've heard other people say, I think it fits, is, hey, this is as if to say, take up your electric chair and follow me. Take up your lethal injection. Take up your, your state-sanctioned way to die in a really inhumane, really awful way. This is what following me is like. Take up your electric chair. And come follow me. A gory, a gory image. It's take, you, know, you take it up and you, you would grab it um, vertically and you'd walk outside of town because this is so undignified of a thing. You can't do this in the public square. You've got to go out of town a little bit. So only the, the, people, the only people who are going to see you are the ones who are coming to jeer at you. Jesus said, this is what it's like to follow me. I think it's, it's fitting that we're doing baptisms this morning. Um, and man, beautiful, beautiful testimonies. Amen. What a gift. What a gift to share in the stories of these young ladies. Um, and baptism is symbolic of likening ourselves with Jesus' death that we may liken ourselves with his resurrection later, right? We identify with Jesus publicly, say, I'm lowered just as Jesus was lowered into the, into the tomb and raised in the victory of his resurrection. This is a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. Like, come and die with me. Yes, that is what we're doing when we take on baptisms. We are identifying publicly with the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. Um, and so in the medieval times, um, during a, a, a thing that no one likes to talk about during the Crusades. Um, the Crusaders, the knights, um, they would get mass baptized before they went off to war because they say, okay, well, you know, if I die in this holy war, I want to go to heaven. And so what I need to do, I think I guess I need to get baptized. So let me get baptized so that way I have this um, protection as I go. And the way they would do it is they would hold their swords over their heads as they got baptized. So everything but their sword would be baptized. As if to say, God, you can have everything, but you can't touch my weapon of war. 
You can have everything, but this thing, I'm, gonna, I'm about to use this to do some, some wicked things. And so don't, don't touch this thing. And we think that's so ridiculous. I mean, if we like, uh, but as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, at least they're honest. At least they're honest about what they're not willing to take into their baptism with them. Like imagine if uh, one of our girls came up and she's like, all right, I'm putting my phone, keep my phone above the water. Uh, this is the one thing, you know, y'all, I'm in, I'm in the tub. Like, come, <laughs> come through, you know. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give everything, but um, except for this thing. This, this one's got to stay up. And if we were honest about what we were willing and what we were not willing to give up, I wonder what we would hold over our heads in our baptism. Would it be our phone? Um, and if the, phone, the phone's a, a funny one, a big one. I, I imagine we all have one in our pockets. Um, I imagine we all have a screen time app that pops up on Sundays and tells us how much time we spend on them. Um, this, I mean, these things are attached to us, and these are things that we now as Christians living in the modern age have to deal with. Um, we were at supper uh, a month or so ago, and one of the, the moms there um, in the group said, I tried to take my kid's phone, and you would think that, they asked, that I asked them to renounce Jesus. And she said, actually, I think they would renounce Jesus before, before they gave me their phones. So if we're having an honest baptism, what are we hanging over our heads? That, that God, you can have everything but not my phone, not my wallet, not my plan for life, not my pedigree, not, not the plan that I have for my vocation, not my body. Even some of us are weapons of war, not my AR-15. You know, you can have it all except for this thing. And if we would just be honest about what we weren't going to give to Jesus, I wonder how different the discipleship in our churches would look like. If we were honest about what we weren't going to let die, what we weren't going to bring in to our baptism. Jesus goes on from this, from this extreme call, that it is in everything. It is, when, when you come with me, you're coming to die. It's everything. And he breaks it down for us a little bit. Luke 9, verse 24. There it is. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So what Jesus is saying is, I understand there's a lot to lose. I understand there's a lot to lose. But here's how it works. If, if you're going to hold on and save yourself, save your freedom, save whatever you want to do, um, you can do that, but it's going to cost you your life. And in this upside-down way, if you will sacrifice it all, if you will say, yes, my, I would rather be dead and with Jesus than alive without Jesus, then you will get life. And he strikes at where we get our identity from. So this is a, this, he offers us a fresh identity. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose himself, forfeit himself, to lose his very soul. So if we don't get our identity in Jesus, where are we going to get it from? It's in the things we gain, right? It's in how, how good I can get at my job, how good I can get at my sport, how good I can get at my craft, what I can do well, you know, how, how good I look, how good I appear to be. If we don't find our identity in Jesus, it's going to be with something that we can gain here in the world, right? It's the only options. So Jesus says, you know, yeah, you can be a doctor, lawyer, baseball player. You can, get those, you can get your identity from those things in the world. And he even goes extreme. He goes, to gain the whole world. You're a doctor and a lawyer and a baseball player and a model. You know, like, if you can get 
everything the world has to offer. You gain all that, but forfeit your soul. What is it all worth? And so when Jesus comes and beckons us to come die with him, he puts on offer a brand new identity. That if you're going to save your life, if, you, if you're going to say, you know, I'm going to gain my identity I'm gonna, from the things I can gain here, um, you lose your life. But if you say, I would rather lose my life than be without you, Jesus, that is the way to gain life, to gain soul. Um, Jesus brings this back around. We're going to um, hop to the end of this chapter. He brings this around in Luke 9. So we got a new identity right. Our new identity now leads us to new priorities. So they go along on this journey doing ministry. And Jesus, again, it's worth mentioning, again foretells his death. Says, you guys don't forget where we're headed. You know, we're on our way to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. Don't forget that. And coming to the end of this chapter, verse 57. We have our new identity. Now we're to gain new priorities. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is harsh language. This is harsh language coming from Jesus. What does he mean? One, he's giving different and personal counsel to each one, right? The first one says, God, I'm going to come follow you. He says, well, go home and think about that. The second one says, God, I I will come follow you, but let me go home first. He goes, no, 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 come with me. And so let's break these down. The first one, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said, hey, if you're going to come with me, you need to know what kind of Savior I am, what kind of teacher I am, what kind of Messiah I am. I'm not the triumphalistic one who wins at the end of this day. That's not where I'm headed. I'm headed to the cross. I'm, I'm, I'm headed to die. And so if you have any predisposition about where we're going to get to sleep, what it's going to be like, how much we're going to have here that we're going to get to triumph at the end of the day, that's not how it's going to be. I'm sleeping in the dirt. And so you have to think about this. If you're going to come where I'm going, you're going you're gonna to lay your head in the dirt. I have nowhere to lay my head. The next comes, Jesus asks him, hey, he said, follow me. He said, first let me go and bury my father. And so this, this is an interesting one. This is a hard one for us to stand. Um, when we hear, let me go bury my father, that means for us, he died last week, let me bury him tonight, and I'll go with you the next day. Um, it may be that. It may also be there's, um, at this point in antiquity, there is a tradition where they, they bury someone immediately, and then they let all the stuff decay and, and, and um, disappear and rot off of the bones, and then like a year later, um, the eldest son will take the bones, put them in a special compartment, and put them in a tomb. So our timeline may be 
one, you know, a couple days, it may be a year, let me go bury my father. Or this may be a Semitic idiom where he's saying, hey, I, the only thing I have to do in my life is honor my parents. And so, you know, my dad may, may still be alive, but let me bury him. Let me take care of that. And then I'll come follow you. And so either way, no matter what the timeline is, whether this is a, a couple days, a year, or, or a, a longer amount of time until Pops kicks the can, um, what is happening here is this is a radical reshift of priority. Jesus is saying, hey, I know, you know, I know what it means to honor the family. And in this culture, honoring family was everything. It was everything. And so to bury Pops was to kind of finish, like, okay, I did it. You know, I did my job. I did what was expected of me. I got that monkey off my back. I did a good job. I finished it. I saw it through. Pops is all taken care of. Now I can go do something. And Jesus says, I have different priorities. Let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. This last one probably strikes us as the most harsh. Dude said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. Seems super reasonable, right? Let me go kiss mom on the cheek and then we'll ride. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing here? Is he just being harsh on purpose? Just to be mean? Just to, you know, uh, destroy the nuclear family structure? Don't care about your family anymore? No. What Jesus is doing, he's saying, this is the priority now. I'm not going to take number two. I'm not going to take the second spot. If your answer when Jesus calls you, come and follow me, is yes, but first, then you don't understand what he has on offer. You don't understand what he's offering you. If your answer is yes, but first let me go, he's saying, no, 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 you don't understand what it is I'm offering. I was, um, I was in my hometown this past week, and my parents have two terrible little dogs. One's a Yorkie, and one's a wiener dog, and they're, they're the worst. Um, and uh, the Yorkie Hogan, um, if you're sitting anywhere in the house, um, not petting him, he will come to you, and he will yap, and he will bark at you until you give him what he wants. And you would think, oh, what do you, he just wants to be with you in the chair. But no, he doesn't want to be with you in the chair you're at. He wants you to pick him up and take him to his favorite chair and sit and hang down with him. So it's not even enough to, to just be like, oh, hey, buddy, you know, pet him. So I'm tissue. He'll keep barking until you go to his favorite chair. And so he rolls up on me, and I'm like, I'm not going to do this, dude. Like, we're in a stare-off, and he's barking for 10 minutes straight. I'm like, I can't live like this. So pick him up. I take him to the chair he wants to go to. Um, I know this is like, you know, it's kind of a silly light analogy, but I think that this is actually a picture of how a lot of us come to Jesus with our ever-present needs, reminding him, reminding him, but we don't really want to be where he would put us. We want him to take us to our favorite place. Right? We don't, we, we're not coming to Jesus for who he is. We just have our needs that we want met. And so we'll, we'll yap at him. And when him, our gracious Savior, would pick us up and bring us to where he is, we say, no, no, no. I want to go to my, I want to go to my favorite place. And this is, we, we, we get confronted with, well, when we come to Jesus, are we coming to someone who is just a Savior or just a Lord? Can I pick and choose? Can I have both? And the analogy that I heard, I'm, I'm doing some brotherly borrowing for, from some other great preachers this morning. But here's an analogy I heard that made sense to me. It's, it's a, you know, my name is Dylan Nylander. And so if I'm to come to someone's house and I would say, hey, 
what's up? Good to see you. And they would say, okay, Dylan can come in, but Nylander cannot. You know, Dylan, yep, good. No, Nylander's not coming in. What would I do? I can't just like, okay, I'll take my Dylan and I'll leave it. You know, like, I, I, can't, I can't separate myself like that. Right? And so Jesus would say the same thing. If we say, Jesus, I would, uh, I'll take your healing. I'll take your forgiveness. I'll take your grace. I'll take, I'll take the forgiveness for sins. I'll take all the good stuff. But don't tell me what to do. Don't take me somewhere I don't want to go. Don't, just be careful how much you ask for me because, you know, I really just came for for this part. He'd say, I don't separate myself. When you come to me, you come to Savior and Lord. In this last part, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so in this day, um, before modern farming, we, you know, we didn't have plow boys that could just um, plow. And again, farming is still hard work. That's one thing that's never changed. Um, we didn't have automatic plow wars that could just churn out like 10 rows perfectly straight at a time. When you're plowing a field, you're either, you're either pushing a plow or you're being pulled by an animal. And the way you have to keep it straight is you pick a point at the end, like a rock or a tree or, or something at the end of your row, and you have to keep your eye on it to keep a straight line. You have to make sure you're not hitting a rock or it'll, it'll, it'll boot you off, you'll get a crooked line. And so Jesus said, this is how, you know how to plow. You have to keep your eye on it. No one who steps to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this is difficult news for a lot of us. Um, and it lays heavy on me. I mean, again, this is blunter than I like to be, right? Jesus is way more blunt than I like to be. And I remember there was a time when I was really just riding the fence of Christianity, really just, you know, really interested in just dipping my toes in the blood of Jesus, but not really interested in all of life change. I would only come to church like once every other week, once a month, because honestly, like I was worried that I would get convicted of my sin and have to change everything. You know, I was like, I don't, I'll, I'll come to an extent, but I don't want to come too close because I know I might get zapped up and I have to change everything, and I'm not really willing to do that right now. There's a great Dallas Willard quote that says, man, a lot of modern Christians are like vampires. They want just enough of the blood of Jesus to get to heaven and then nothing more to do with him until then. Nothing more to do with Jesus between now and then. That's how I was. And so this might be a difficult, hard staying for those of us who are in this place where we're really on the fence. And for those of us in this place, church can then become less of like a coming together with the community of faith to stir each other up to love and good works and more of a, well, I got to clean my conscience up for a second so I can go back to doing whatever I want to. And yes, the call to Jesus is offensive and all-encompassing, but um, in some ways, of course it is, right? If, if what if what we say we have is what we actually have. We actually have the words of our perfect, loving God who invites us into relationship. Of course, this thing is going to come to bear in a way that disappoints me, provokes me, stirs me up, and, and calls me to change. Right? Or else it's, it's not relationship. Galatians says it this way, uh, of this, how do we deal with with these desires that we have, where it's like, ah, I, would, I really would rather do my own thing. But Jesus says, 
it is an all of life thing. How do we deal with this? Galatians 5, I, I don't have it up here. Um, uh, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 17. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Get this part. They, Spirit and flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Some of you, that, like, you just came to hear the, that part, honestly. You, so you are not to do whatever you want. Beware of just doing the things that you want to do. Because if what we have is the words of our perfect God who beckons us into relationship and it never conflicts with our ideals, I'm not perfect. Are you, are you perfect? Are your ideals perfect? Are, they, are your plans for your life perfect? But we find that God's plans and our plans for ourselves aren't rubbing up against each other. There's something wrong, and we're not really in relationship. And so Jesus, he comes, gives us a new identity. He says, what, what point is it to gain all the world that, all that the world can offer and lose yourself? Then he gives us a new priority. Harsh sayings. Who returns back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So we've got brand new priorities. It's me and then a big gap and then everything else. And so he comes back to this um, a couple chapters later in Luke 14. This idea. This idea of how high above any other priority he should be. We're in Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. And again, this is, Jesus is using, a, what I love about Jesus is often it's, it's easy and tempting to, to form our sermons around like, what's going to bring people in, right? And Jesus, if you ever see a part in the Gospels where like, there are a lot of people following him, you know he's about to say something wild, and he's going to thin the crowds out. He really does that. Yeah, he really does that. Verse 25, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So yeah, he, Jesus comes with the cross thing again, right? And he says it, the first time he says it in the positive, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross and follow me. Now he says it in the negative, if you don't do that, Anyone who does not take up his own cross cannot follow me. That is the way to follow me. He says some harsh things that are hard to understand, frankly. He says, when you come to me, you have to hate your own father and mother and wife and children. Some of you guys are like, done, I hate my mom, dude. <laughs> like, like, that's the easiest thing the Bible told me to do all day. Um, if that's too easy for you to take, you're missing it. <laughs> that, is, that is not what is happening here. Christ's call is a call of love and service and putting the other person ahead of yourself, especially honoring your parents, right? And so when we take this in context of all that Jesus comes to us to say, what does this mean? When he says you got to hate everyone in your life and love me alone. This is a comparative statement. He's saying in comparison to how much you love me, how much of a priority I am to you, 
how high above everything else in your life I am, it should look like your love, because you do love your parents, you love your neighbors yourself, right? Your love for those people should be so much lesser of a love that it looks like hate compared to the love for me. This is Jesus saying, I'm coming for the number one spot. I'm coming for the spot of love, that your love for neighbor and family look like hate. And he gives some analogies, some first century analogies that honestly you have stood up pretty well. He's saying this is what it's like. This is what it's like to count the cost, to consider. I'm not willing that you should hop on this train without knowing where it's going. And so let's think about this the way we would think about anything else. Verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, so I mean, this is, when I say this holds up, if you've ever tried to build a house, you know that it, like, we've, we, in the last 2,000 years, we've gotten, like, we all have gotten this mind about us, it's going to cost more than I think. And so if I think it's going to cost 30000 to build this thing, I'm going to budget 50000 because I know the way these things go, they always cost more than what we think they're going to cost, right? Same with war. We think we're going to be able to get in, get out of a war quick, but we got to remember, hey, these things always take longer than we hope they do, and they always cost more than what we're willing to pay. So he's saying think about, think about just life. Think about someone building a tower. Think about going to war. And these are like, uh, I I. I couldn't remember who it was. I, I, again, I think it's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, preacher of the 20th century. He said, preachers should prepare a sermon with a Bible in one hand and newspaper in the other. And this is, in a lot of ways, what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, is coming after the issues of the day. Just, you know, he's preaching somewhere between 80-30 and 80-33. And just in 80-27, in the Roman Empire, um, there was a huge issue when um, a big Colosseum collapsed. And about 50,000 people died. It's like, yeah, I know what it's like for someone to do a bad job building. You know, I, I, I get what you mean when you say you're going to want to count the cost for this building operation. Because we saw someone who didn't. And in AD 29, Herod Antipas, who is um, the head of Israel, had just lost a war to a, a local Roman leader. So they would say, hey, yeah, we understand what it means to go into war foolishly without thinking about this. And so Jesus' call here is to count the cost. So often our evangelistic techniques um, can be weak, just like, oh, look, look at how good, look at how fun, look at how joyful. And that's all true. Following Jesus is a joyful endeavor for now, and, and at his right hands are riches forevermore. We can, we can say, yes, if you follow Jesus, it will be hard now, there will be joy and obedience, and there will be pleasures forevermore at his right hand. But, I lost my point there. That's my bad. Sorry. Jesus is not willing that we would come on board without counting the cost. 
And so he says, this is the way you would treat anything. You would think about anything that was a big decision as if it was that. And so for some of us, both believer and non-believer and half-believer, we come to this point when Jesus says, whoever's going to follow me must take up his cross. And we either say yes or we say no. And the call of Jesus here is to count the cost. To have an honest estimation of what it's going to cost to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, everything. This last verse is striking. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I think, you know, we get that uh, Jesus would come to the rich young ruler and say, sell everything you have and follow me. Um, and he walked away sad. And we, we too quickly comfort ourselves and say, oh, but he doesn't call everyone to do that. He doesn't call everyone to give up everything that they have and follow him. So, yeah, he calls some people. He calls some people. We make ourselves so comfortable with thinking that Jesus wouldn't ask us to give everything. But he says that is the very definition of following me. That is the starting point is giving everything. And we have a lot of us, a lot of us Christians, we do the same thing with our time and our money that a morally upright nonbeliever would do. We say, Jesus, I'll take the right beliefs, but don't come for the things I care about. And I have a, I have a couple of buddies in my life who've taken this seriously and been a big inspiration to me. I have, I have a friend who, while he was at work, was pondering, what's my most prized possession? And then when he thought about it, he didn't like the thoughts that he had surrounding his prized possession. So by the time he got home, he put that thing on eBay. I have a friend who has a good, comfortable job, good, good, good career path, doing well. And he has been wrestling for months whether Jesus is calling him to leave it all, sell everything he has, and, and live on the streets. Considering these things, considering these things, that the call for Jesus touches everything. And so if you're worried, if you hear this extreme call, that man, I've got to hate my mom. <laughs> no. <laughs> you hear this extreme call of leaving everything, taking up your cross to follow Jesus. And you think, man, I've missed the call. Man, I've missed it. Or man, I'm not sure I could say yes to this. Or my failures already have disqualified it. Or my future failures disqualify me from taking up this call. I encourage you by saying, let's think about where the disciples were when Jesus was carrying his cross. You would think if they, if they took this teaching seriously... If, the, if, if you see in the Gospels clearly multiple times, he's saying, take up your cross and follow me, where would we imagine that the disciples are going to be on crucifixion day? Rolling 12 deep, right? Rolling, maybe joyful about it, like, that's my savior up there. You know, like, just I hope y'all got a big hill because it's 13 of us, right? You would imagine if they were going to take up their cross and Jesus said, this is what it's like to follow me, you would imagine there would be 13 to 15 crosses up there on Jesus' crucifixion day. But where were the disciples when Jesus was carrying his cross? If you ask Matthew, Mark, and Luke that question, they've got nothing to say. They don't tell us. It's most likely they're hiding and they're scared because they scattered in the garden. So when Jesus was carrying his cross, they weren't there. The only one who didn't deserve to carry a cross 
was carrying it alone. And then Jesus rose and he came to them. He poured out his spirit on them and established his church. Something changed. Right before the resurrection, they're hiding. They won't carry, they won't follow Jesus to the cross. Resurrection happens, Holy Spirit happens. All 12 of them are martyred for the faith. Something changed, and that is still the change that happens. When we say, how am I going to do this? How am I going to carry my cross? It is still the resurrection power of Jesus through his Holy Spirit changing and working in us to empower us, helpless as we are, sinful as we are, weak as we are, to take up our cross and follow. And we know that Jesus has not asked us to do something he didn't already do. He picked up his cross, and it was bigger than ours. It was a bigger cross than you will ever take up. Because on his cross, the Father turned his face away that he would never turn his face away from you. The Father poured his wrath onto the Son that he would never pour his wrath onto you. John 6.31 says it beautifully. It says, all who the Father have given me come to me. And all who come to me, I will never cast out. And so this is the call. We do come to Jesus. And he tells us exactly what that means. It means going to the cross. It means taking up your cross. We come to Jesus. But if we're afraid that he won't take us, we can say, Jesus said, those who come to me, I will never cast out. He has done the greater thing. He has carried the bigger cross. And he bids you, come and die. Come and follow me. Come and take up your cross. We're going to take some time. The band's going to come back up. Um, we think with a sermon like this, we just want to respond. We just want to take some time and respond. So we're going to have a team up here um, who maybe you just have to say, you just have to hear yourself say to someone, I want to follow Jesus, but it's so hard. We have to say, man, I, I felt like I took up my cross a long time ago, but maybe I put it down. If there's a next step for you, we have a trained team who's here to share the gospel with you, to pray for you, and to help you take a next step.